The work of this church in the world is realized through the generous financial support of all who call this place home. Along with the gifts and time and talent, ours is a shared ministry. You have a role to play here. Church membership is open to all. For more information, go to uusf.org. It is the time for making lists and checking them twice, remembering that Aunt Bertha likes white chocolate, and your niece has a birthday that comes a few days before Christmas, so get that package out early and well-labeled. It's the time for gift-giving and also being asked what it is you want, too. And I am not a Scrooge, just so you know. Gifts are one of my love languages, in fact. But last year, when all the reveals were done and the fairy dust and the wrapping paper had settled, I experienced a strange feeling of letdown. Gratitude, joy, yes. Fond expectation of cracking that novel that someone else gave me because they thought I would enjoy it, yes. But also letdown. It's a totally understandable feeling, really. It happens often in life, not just around stuff, but stuff does bring it on particularly well. It happens with a lot of things that we pin our hopes on. When we get them, not always, but often if we do get them, we can feel not as magnificently happy as we imagined we might feel. Part of that can be how much we can idealize any given thing or hoped for reality. Every city we might want to visit, after all, has its rude people and its chance of getting our baggage lost at the airport, for instance. But there is this thing, too, that researchers call hedonic adaptation. The notion that you and I quickly adjust to any good feeling or reality that comes our way and that pretty soon becomes our norm or baseline. When that happens, the part of us that quests innately for novelty sets to work again and we get back on what researchers call the hedonic treadmill, that never-ending machine of more and more wanting. Mind you, when I'm talking about this, I'm not talking about those times and moments when what we need and get is our basic needs met. When you or I want food or safe and adequate shelter or freedom from violence or a doctor to tend to our body's ills, those needs, when met, have a lasting effect. In fact, if we were going to do an analysis of where in the universe we should fulfill needs to get the greatest hedonic and humane return on investment, we would agree to meet the most basic needs of humanity first. That gift endures longest. And I want to say, too, that I know there are things that we can put on our holiday wish lists that have more sticking power. Things like experiences over stuff, time with people, activities that put us in that magic place of flow, 
anything that puts us in learning mode. And if we give ourselves gratitude practices and some exercise for the holidays, that would be the gift that keeps on giving. But this morning, what I'm more interested in is the fact that it's not entirely our fault that we feel regularly misled in our wanting and where it is that seems sometimes to lead us. I have a pile of papers beside my desk, things to file, to read, to figure out what to do with. I don't know if any of you have those files. <laughs> And during the October installment of my sabbatical, I went through one of those piles and I found eight pages that were strangely as relevant now as when I read them 25 years ago, which is probably why I kept them, because they felt so powerful. And I figured out, after much research, they were from a book by the still-living theologian Stanley Hauerwas from his book, A Community of Character. In it, Hauerwas observes that in liberal democracies like our own, we have chosen to put at the center of all we do in practice the individual. But not just the individual. The individual and their right and even obligation to get their needs and wants met. Society, our economy, organizes around this. And we, we can start to mistake this freedom for the freedom we would fight hardest to protect or start to confuse this order of life with the infinite possibilities our nation might make possible. It's easy to get busy organizing a life around how much we might be able to get our own needs and wants met. And it's increasingly clear that the results of this grand experiment are that this way of organizing our lives leaves us empty. It keeps us buying and striving and amassing and distracted and frenzied even, but it starves us of what we most hunger for and need, what feeds us. And I'm not telling you something you don't already know. It doesn't order our lives individually or together in creating a world in which we take care of one another. Our carriages instead start to fly down the roads of life, sending others into the ditch, and we don't look back if we're not careful. Because the story that we tell as a nation increasingly isn't a story of we, it's an I story. And here's the key, a nation that makes the fullest realization of my needs and wants possible is only a great nation if my dreams and wants and needs are grand and shared in scope. Does that make sense? But who's working to keep it that way? Industry? Amazon? Here, Hauerwas says, is where church has to come in. 
My husband sometimes says he thinks I work in a dying industry, though he believes in church. So hold what I say maybe with that in mind. Church, he says, is a place that keeps another story. This, ideally, is a place that honors the sacredness of every person, but also doesn't put the I at the center either. And if that worries you, which as Unitarian Universalists, it often does, sets our tyranny of the majority fears and alarms going off, know, please, that Hauerwas's sense of a church that is closest, he's a Christian, to the biblical truths of how we should be together, the ideal is that it's one that welcomes questioning of inherited truths and traditions that is judged and known by how well it welcomes the stranger and in which the gifts, the diversity of gifts that each person brings with them are seen as one of the greatest blessings and surprises of incarnational life together and that we make use of to incredible good no one is expendable in this church. But also, it puts a larger story than any of us at the center of our shared work, of our lives here and beyond. Hauerwas thinks story is incredibly important. He thinks a religious community has to be bound by stories of who it is, and what it's supposed to be guided by, and how it will be together, and to what end it is striving. Abandoned story, a shared story, and church looks too much like the world, the one that leaves everyone to their own private narrative with all the weaknesses of that mode of living. Also, the narratives he thinks that we need to put at the center of our shared life have to be about ones that are stepping into the world as it is, honestly, with no easy promises of when we will get to where we are going, but pulled forward by this long vision that generations before and generations to come together have each leaned into the yoke of realizing that this story is worth generations of shared sacrifice, if that's what it takes to get there. That story for him is the story of the place where the lamb and the lion lie down together and swords are beaten into plowshares and all children will have the same life outcomes and de facto protections and privileges and justice rolls down like water and peace like an ever-flowing stream. It's the story of nonviolence so that where we get to is mirrored in the values and the ways that we get there, never having means justify ends. It acknowledges the human propensity for sin and brokenness, and yes, evil, and our power for self-sacrificial love, emptied up against that evil and brokenness. And a world in which love surprises us by what it's able to bring into being in the world again and again. It's the story of 40 years in the desert and prophets who don't see promised lands that they suffered and struggled to lead others to. 
And people who lose faith and find it again and lose faith and find it again and again and again and a savior nailed to a cross, but how the death and evil, even the worst death and evil that we see, never gets the last word. Just like winter yields to spring, and the phoenix rises from the ashes. For us, with our broader religious embrace, it's also the story of a prince who gives up his wealth and status to find liberation, and then sets about sharing that liberation with others. And it's about dervishes on the road who bless those who wrong them and instruct the student in such wisdom so it carries on. And all of it, all of it and more, is so much bigger than the rags-to-riches dream or the myth of the self-made person or any illusion of worldly glory. It's people bound together in things bigger than ourselves, but it is something we have to remember to tell ourselves in a world where we are told to garner likes and to be a frequent buyer and to develop our own online personal brand. We are not a brand. We are a band of people bound in the telling and retelling and living of a larger story. That's what our mission and vision processes are about each generation as we try to articulate what is asked of us in that story in this moment in time. And it's about the people, our heroes buried on our land or with rooms named after them, the pictures of our personal saints like our Reiner Award winners on our walls to remind us of the legacy that we participate in. These have to be truthful stories, not overly mythologized, ones that name where we have made grave errors and done harm, but articulate still a bigger picture of who we are together. And if you don't like songs with God in them, and I don't like anything but social justice work to happen at church, and she wants something for her kid, and that's all she's generally concerned about, and they wish we had espresso at coffee hour and more parking, that is all fine. But we remember that it is bigger than all of that and that we are bigger than all of that. And this isn't a mall of church where we pick up our happy meal. I'd like fries with my church, please. We resist all of that, even though everything tries to hook us into that narrative of how we are to step into the world and think about ourselves. We forget Howard Wass writes that the most basic task of any polity is to offer its people a sense of participation in an adventure. For finally what we seek is not power or security or equality or even dignity, but a sense of worth gained from participation and contribution to some common endeavor. Indeed, our dignity derives exactly from our sense of having played a part in such a story. But I know you know this. 
It just seems sometimes I need to remind myself of it. And I know you know it because the signs are all around us of the story that we all serve and are part of. They are in the memorial service and civic center that we will attend this Thursday night, a memorial for our so far 250 unhoused siblings who have died on the streets of San Francisco or while in temporary SRO housing, if they were lucky to get that, as substandard as some of that housing is. It's a memorial where each name will be read and it's organized in part by the Faithful Fools, a ministry we helped incubate and still support and participate in and we witness at that event because we don't believe people are disposable and we don't believe the unhoused are a problem. They are an opportunity to dig deep and fix a world, the world that lets them languish, our world. And our story is the Human Rights Working Group, reflecting on its persistent and visionary work this year and taking time to ask together, and everyone is invited, what we're called to witness and work for this year. And attending to the parts of the human family and of ourselves that are under threat, our GLBTQI folks who don't have full legal protections still, and our trans kids who are suffering and committing suicide at greater and disproportionate numbers, and women and girls who are in need of abortions and can't get them, and refugees from poverty who need a home that is safe with possibilities for fruition, and people of color who live with violence and the living legacy of oppression who matter, and everyone in need of a safety net. All this and the infinite other ways that we step into living the kingdom of heaven, to use big metaphorical religious language, or just the bigger store story of us, if you prefer. And we practice it here, so I think, so we're better equipped to take that way of being with us out into the world. Because that's our purpose. So, I wish for all of us a sense of participation in an adventure, a common one, a story that is big enough that we might feel lucky to even be a footnote in it. A story that takes generations to finish because its vision is so expansive. And I wish for us the courage that we may face the doubt that is part of any journey as long and windy as this one. And enough hope to always be willing to take even just the next step. What's on your wish list? To what we hope for, I say, may all our deepest desires this season be rekindled, or as the dervish on the road called out, may all of your deepest desires be satisfied. So may it be.
Amen. I grew up Jewish, and I was interested in ethics, so I always went back to the book of Job. The book of Job answers the question of why bad things happen to good people. Job is a good person, even God brags about his virtue, but God makes bad things happen to Job to test his faith. When I was a kid, I was told that there's a divine wisdom that people can't know, so it's not our place to question why bad things happen to good people. Judaism also has a tradition of questioning and debate, so not everyone agrees with that interpretation. I remember one Hebrew school teacher asked our class if we thought the world would be better without natural disasters. The class said that natural disasters were good because they made things interesting. <laughs> because of that, I never actually got to hear what point she was trying to teach us. Maybe she wanted to say that bad things happen to good people without rhyme or reason, without a divine plan or wisdom. My mom died when I was young, and that made Job much more concrete for me. It wasn't some nameless person dying in a natural disaster. My mom was a doctor. She helped people. How could a just God have taken her so early? When I went to synagogue after that, I didn't get any meaningful answers to those questions. Even though I thought about why bad things happen to good people, I never read the book of Job for myself until college. And when I did, it wasn't at all what I was expecting. People say the message in Job is that bad things happen to good people because of a divine plan, but that wasn't my interpretation. The book of Job starts by revealing why God tortures Job and kills his family. God is trying to win a bet with one of his angels, a bet that Job will remain faithful to God even when tortured. The angel says, does Job fear God for nothing? You have blessed the work of his hands, but stretch your hand out now, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said, very well, all that he has is in your power. When Job is suffering, his friends don't treat him with compassion. They say that he must be evil if bad things are happening to him. Job retorts that there is no divine justice. Why do the wicked live on, reach old age, grow mighty in power, their houses are safe from fear, and no rod from God is upon them? When Job asks God why he was cursed, God doesn't explain. Instead, he says that it isn't Job's place to question God, because God is mighty beyond mortal understanding. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Declare if you know all this. Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Job doesn't condemn God even then, but I will. It wasn't unknowable divine wisdom. It was toxic masculinity. <laughs> God was trying to win a bet 
so he hurt someone to prove that they would stay obedient to him. When he's challenged, he doesn't apologize or speak as a still, small voice. No, he shouts as a terrifying whirlwind about how powerful he is. And even in the end, when God restores Job's health and wealth and gives Job new children, that seems a small repayment for the children that were killed. For me, the most important part of religion and philosophy is ethics, good and evil, how we, every one of us, should act. And when I read Job, it seems like the answer in Judaism was that ethics meant obedience to the powerful, even when they're wrong. So I never looked back. Why do bad things happen to good people? I don't think there's any divine plan behind a heart attack or a natural disaster. I think of it as a challenge. Bad things happen to good people because we haven't stopped them from happening. And until we do, we're called to treat one another with compassion instead of pointing a finger. As Dr. Seuss says, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, Nothing is going to get better. It's not. Mm -hmm.